This podcast is brought to you by gold sponsor Equiland, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry, and by silver sponsor Broadridge, a global fintech leader and proven partner to streamline and simplify your securities finance business. Hello, one and all, and welcome back to Pazzle's Asia Securities Finance Monthly. I'm Matt MacArthur in Hong Kong, and thanks for joining us on our sixth episode of the Pazzle podcast series. Each month, we bring you insights and perspective from around the region on news and developments shaping the securities finance industry. Coming up on this episode, after another turbulent year in the financial markets, we dust off Pazzle's crystal ball to see what opportunities 2023 have in store for investors. And from my perspective, having integrity is, to me, number one most important thing. You have to have integrity. You cannot lie. You cannot cheat. You cannot hope to hide something. Integrity is the most important thing. Legend of the market, Stu Jones, shares his insights a little later in the show. All right, all right, all right. And welcome to the sixth episode of the Pazla podcast series. If you are a repeat listener, we appreciate your patronage throughout the year. If you are a first-time listener, where the hell have you been? But on a serious note, we are pleased today to have with us two godfathers of the securities finance industry. And before I rain down praise on them, I'll put it in context for all of us gray-haired audience members. If I'm Maverick, my wingmen today are Viper and Jester, also known as Jeff Coyle, trading from Northern Trust in Hong Kong and Ed Oliver, product development for ESEC Lending in London. As you know, we normally cover topical events or dive into specific markets, but I think it's important to retrace our footsteps in what was a very tumultuous year. Now let's get in the DeLorean and go back in time and try to figure out what caused the downturn of the stock market and the huge foreign exchange swings, not to mention 2022 bringing one of the largest global investment banks to its knees. Now, Jeff, from a macro perspective, with the challenging geopolitical and economic environment that we've seen in 2022. What type of year has it been for APAC Finance? Yeah, hi, Matt. Firstly, thanks for the kind introduction and Happy New Year to you. And thanks very much for having me here. So I think it would be fair to say that it was a mixed bag for securities lending in Asia Pacific or APAC for 2022. Global conditions of high inflation, rising interest rates and the war in Ukraine, of course, combined with local challenges in APAC, including COVID restrictions and regulatory tightening. This resulted in some detrimental effects on business, as well as creating some opportunities. Some regional markets fared well, and some markets underperformed. So it was a bit of yin and a bit of yang. And how exactly has that played out in the region? So if we look at the two traditionally strongest revenue markets of Japan and Hong Kong, they both suffered from a real lack of event activity. So this is the type of activity which would typically drive borrow demand. We're talking about mergers and acquisitions, or M&A, capital raising, and convertible bonds issuance. According to Bloomberg, M&A was down around 25% year on year, and cap raising was down by a whopping 50% from 2021. Falling market valuations, given the challenging economy, have also impacted revenue, with most indices in the region tracking down in the 15 to 20% range over the year. And, you know, additional to that, there was a material degrossing of hedge fund exposures in APAC, 
which means that they have unwound exposures both on the long side, i.e. their purchases, and on the short side, i.e. their short sales. And did that affect lending volumes or revenues? Yeah, so year-on-year lending volumes in APAC were relatively stable, except notably for Hong Kong. Volumes were down by about 25%, according to DataLend. In revenue terms, Australia had a stellar year, which was helped by the BHP listing consolidation, as spoken about actually on the last Pazla podcast. And Australia had revenue up by more than 50% year-on-year. Taiwan was also strong, with revenue up 20%. Versus 2021. Revenues in Japan and Hong Kong, however, were down. Career revenue was up more than 20%, but this really was because we got a full year of trading in 2022, as opposed to 2021, where we only got half a year of trading um, subsequent to the short sell ban being partially, partially lifted in May 2021. The overall result was that APAC revenue increased by around 10% year on year. Drilling down a little deeper, it's expected that large markets like Japan and Hong Kong would be affected by things you've already mentioned, Ukraine, interest rates, ongoing COVID effects still lingering in Asia. But what about the smaller markets? Why was Taiwan so strong? And how did 2022 play out for markets like Korea and Thailand? Yeah, good question, Matt. So as well as being a strong performer in terms of revenue growth, Taiwan was actually the best market performer measured by outright lending revenue with over 500 million US dollars generated according to data lend figures. That's a pretty impressive number. And whilst we did see a degrossing of exposures in other APAC markets, Taiwan benefited from a number of factors. First, there's a large pool of over 1,700 securities available for shorting, and therefore plenty of mid-cap and small-cap securities. So that securities outside of the large multinational household names that we might be familiar with. And this is the type of large, diverse universe of assets that makes an attractive market for hedge fund participation. There's no uptick requirement for short selling for margin trading, meaning you can execute a short sell at current market price, which is not always the case with some other APAC markets. And add to the fact that it's a stock market which is heavily weighted to technology stocks, as well as having a decent component of transport stocks, so think shipping and airlines. Those macroeconomic headlines that we spoke about have already really played out well for um, lending volumes in Taiwan. So the other markets, Korea, Thailand and Malaysia that you mentioned, haven't fared so well. Korea was up year on year for the reasons I mentioned earlier. But actually, it's fared quite badly subsequently to its initial reopening boost. Thailand was pretty flat year on year, whilst Malaysia was down from a high 2021 performance as demand for latex glove manufacturing names, I think COVID, has subsided somewhat. You mentioned tech and transport sectors have been beneficial to Taiwan. Are there any other sectors that have seen increased demand in APAC in 2022? Yeah, so a lot of the borrow demand we saw in 2022 was driven by consumer goods in the face of the tough economy. Also, commodities due to surging prices and supply chain issues were popular short names. Lithium miners in Australia, so lithium is used in electronic components as well as electric vehicles. So they've been a popular short and Australian oil producers too. 
Keeping with Australia, buy now, pay later stocks faced a profitability squeeze uh, caused by the raising interest rate environment, and they were popular shorts as well. Uh, in Korea, we had battery manufacturers, which were exposed again to commodities to the surge in nickel prices. And of course, we can't forget China stocks. So China stocks trading in Hong Kong continue to feel the lingering effects of 2021's regulatory tightening, which affected the property sectors and technology sector, amongst others. In fact, another interesting sector in 2022 is the private education company sector. They were also captured in the 2021 regulatory tightening and the share prices consequently collapsed. But actually, they started to recover mid-2022 as some started diversifying their activities, so taking their revenue streams away from the pure private education. Those resurgent share prices brought additional short-selling interest as traders deemed those securities to be overboard. Now, it does beg the question, is there a likely carryover? for those sectors in 2023? Yeah, going into 2023, many of those 2022 dynamics are not going to go away anytime soon. We might see supply chains easing further as, con as China continues to open up from its zero COVID policy. And in fact, one signal of this, which already played out in 2022, was the dramatic fall in shipping container freight rates through the year. And that resulted in interest in that sector. Unfortunately, it looks like the war in Ukraine could be prolonged. So that will continue to weigh on the global economy. But there are other developments that may play out on the positive side. So, for example, Xi Jinping and Joe Biden met last November at the G20 summit in Bali. And there are already signs that could be the start of a thaw in the ongoing trade tensions. And it's also expected that we will see at some point in 2024 free a tapering of interest rates or even a reversal, a reduction in rates. We've probably all heard and read different opinions over year end about how global stock markets will perform in 2023, but there is a definite potential for some of the drag factors to be removed in APAC, which would boost stock market performance. And somewhat counterintuitively, strong performing markets should lead to increased exposures on the short and long side as stock prices decorrelate. Now, has the regulatory tightening in APAC during 2020 helped or hurt demand? And how has it affected overall revenue for our markets here locally in APAC? So Matt, this is really a tale of two markets, Taiwan and Korea. As listeners may know, Taiwan reduced the amount of its daily short sell quota. In other words, the number of shares that can be sold short in the market on any given day, they reduced it consecutively from 30% of 30-day average daily volume traded to 20% and then to 10% in the space of two weeks in October. So quite a reduction. So far, this has not had a major impact, but it remains to be seen if and when this quota will be increased again or whether a prolonged period of reduced quota will start to have an attritional effect. In Korea, rather disappointingly, we did not see the anticipated lifting of the remaining short sell ban. So as it stands, short selling can only occur for COSPI 200 and COSDAQ 150 constituents, which provides limited opportunity for market participants. Furthermore, the regulator in Korea introduced enhanced regulatory reporting, oversight and enforcement regime, which whilst well intended, it creates an additional burden and risk consideration which is likely to play a critical part on any decision whether to participate 
in the career market. And finally, the impact from December announcement on enforcement action is likely to further subdue activity. It doesn't bode well for career heading into 2023, and I expect revenue opportunities from that market to remain suppressed. Now, Ed, if I could turn to you, Jeff has spoken about some of the regulatory tightening that has been enacted in APAC. Have we seen any positive regulatory or structural developments in APAC markets in 2022? Hi, Matt, and Happy New Year to you and to the audience. Well, 2022 was a bit disappointing in the way of significant announcements from new markets. However, I see some green shoots with two recent announcements. Firstly, the KPEI in Indonesia announced new bilateral securities lending and borrowing rules. At first glance, it appears that the opportunity will be initially limited to domestic investors. But similarly, in China, the Beijing Stock Exchange has drafted new securities lending and short selling rules. And these bring Beijing in line with Shanghai and Shenzhen, and again, more aimed domestically. So whilst not potentially an opportunity for Pazla's members, who are traditionally foreign investors, the fact that securities lending is on the regulator's agenda can't be a bad thing. What do you see as the most important aspects for aspiring securities lending markets to focus on in developing a viable international lending product? That's a good question. I think the big opportunity in Asia has got to be China and India. Now, both of those are essentially a central counterparty market today, which unfortunately limits the typical offshore investor from participation. Offering a bilateral securities lending and borrowing facility would definitely see this open up. So although it's on the wish list and would be a big opportunity for the region and for investors, I suspect that's going to be a step too far in the near and midterm for both markets. What is the outlook for 2023 APAC market developments? And I think there's no way avoiding asking you this, but are we going to see any updates on access to China via securities lending on either QFI or Stock Connect? Aha, that is the big question, isn't it? Well, I think the good news is that the region's doors are open once again, and this offers the opportunity for renewed engagement with exchanges and regulators starting, of course, with Pazla's very own 2023 conference in Tokyo in March. As I mentioned earlier, we've seen securities lending on the regulatory agenda last year, but I think our job in 2023 is to talk, meet and educate. For China in particular, going back to your question, I think 2023 is unlikely to see much in the way of movement, but we never say never. It is one of the markets that is a real focus for the Pazla team, and engagement is already underway. Finally, it's also worth mentioning that I do hope to see the new securities lending and short selling regulations in the Philippines finally approved in the near term, which will be extremely well received by the Pazla community. Now, Jeff, can I ask you to peek into 2023 once more? As we move through a year end, we saw capital constraints coming into play with some agent lender increasing their general collateral rates. Do you see this as a continued trend playing out in the long term? Yeah, that's an interesting and topical question, Matt. So capital constraints have long been a factor in the securities lending ecosystem, whether you're a lender or a borrower. But we did see this play out over year end as some agent lenders actively reduced balances and or increased their general collateral fees. Now, borrowers have been actively managing their balance sheets and capital requirements for years. And solutions such as pledge and risk-weighted assets collateral sets are well-established. Over the past year, however, the conversation around how best to manage 
regulatory capital requirements from an agent lender perspective has definitely grown louder. So, you know, the market will endeavour to seek solutions to these challenges, and they may take the form of increased general collateral fees, lower levels of indemnification, or better risk pricing, or, or likely a combination of all three of these. And I have one last question for you, fellows, and I'll throw this in the air like a flower bouquet at a wedding. And I know it's a little outside the scope of Asia, but it's something I've always wondered. Most of the unnecessary market turbulence in the past uh, 15 years or so has been generated from the U.S., the housing bubble of 2008, WorldCom, Enron, Lehman Brothers, the recent crypto debacle, even Archegos. What I'm driving at here is, do the U.S. regulators need to tighten the screws, or are a few bad actors just the cost of doing business, especially when we have success stories like Google or Facebook and Tesla? Again, this is not directly impacting Asia, but are there any takeaways for us in Asia? That's a tough question, Matt. I, I agree to a certain extent in order to allow capital markets to flourish, you have to turn the taps on and every now and again, you have to turn the taps off. So it's almost, it's a bit of a game of push and pull. You're, you know, whenever we get situations like Archegos or the global financial crisis, then regulators start to take a hard look at what is already in place. I think uh, I would look at it as, as well that innovation in capital markets happens you know, clearly some of the examples you've described there, Matt, happened and, and originated in the US. There's always going to be bumps in the road with innovation and regulators, I think, generally are playing catch up. And we've seen that with the crypto world in the last couple of years and the challenges of, of appropriately regulating that environment. So I think it's inevitable with innovation that you are going to get those bumps in the road, whether it's always the US that sort of is the originator of that. It can be debated. But I mean, we've also seen in the UK in the tail end of 2022, the government announced 30 measures to change the regulation and make London a, a more attractive environment for investors and capital markets. And, and that you could argue is lifting some of the regulatory oversight that exists today. So I think it's always a battle between appropriate regulation and capital market innovation. And I think that's just a end result that is inevitable at certain times in the cycle. Jeff, Ed, thank you very much for the recap of 2022. That puts a nice bow on things for us. And hopefully 2023 brings the market a little less volatility. And of course, to our listeners, thank you for supporting us in 2022. And I hope that the new year brings you at least a 10% market return. Our next guest certainly needs no introduction, but for the listeners outside of Asia, I'll quickly bring you up to speed. He's been in securities finance for 20 years. He was the chairman of PASLA for five, recently managing director at Jefferies, and before that, ran the supply desk for Morgan Stanley in both Hong Kong and Japan. It is my pleasure to welcome in a true legend of the market, Stu Jones. Matty, thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. I appreciate the, uh, appreciate the invitation. Now, let's start from the beginning. You once told me you were from a small farming village in England. So moving to Asia, no less working here for a decade. Does that still blow your mind? I think actually it's one of the most important things that characterizes an individual. I do think that having a diverse background, something that people look at, find interesting, well, can you explain how you got from there to here, etc.? It just makes you more of a rounded person. And 
you know, as I look back over my career, there's nothing I regret at all, especially not coming from a, you know, farming, agricultural type background. Definitely not. It's funny you say regrets. We're certainly going to tackle that in a minute. But let me pull on that string a little bit. You started your career in London, then Hong Kong, then Japan, then back to Hong Kong. How does the working culture compare in each location? That's a great question. That's a great question. In Asia, you still have to have a lot of hybrid functionality, if you like, as an individual. So when I moved out from the UK to Hong Kong, you know, I, I was like a pure stock loan guy out in, in the UK, moved out to Hong Kong, a couple of people off sick, one person moved up to Japan for a couple of weeks. And all of a sudden, you're like, right, hey, listen, Stuart, you're the dude. You need to do this swap stuff. You need to figure out where to book this Taiwan stuff. You need to figure out what we're doing in Korea. You need to do all this, that, and the other. And you're like, you're sitting there going, I landed yesterday. So there's a definitely uh, an element of trial by fire, but there's also an element of, you know, one minute you're doing a very formulaic, very simplistic, narrowly defined role. And the next minute, that narrowly defined role becomes incredibly broad. And then when I was asked by my boss to move up to Japan, I said, let's move to Japan. When can we go? And my main reason for wanting to move to Japan is because culturally speaking, it was incredibly different from Hong Kong. You had to learn Japanese. It wasn't that you could come to Hong Kong and speak English and, and never really make an effort to make a huge assimilation, if you like. You move up to Japan and you have to learn the language. And I wanted the challenge. I wanted a cultural challenge, a linguistic challenge, etc. So, yeah, it was a no. It was a no-brainer. And, and Maddie, I loved it to pieces, mate. Now you've held probably more so than anybody that's been on this podcast before. You've held some high-profile jobs in your career. How exactly did you manage a proper work-life balance, or did you have one? So. You know, I was chairman of PASDA, but I was also chairman of equities at a SIFMA. And I think it does create some, I won't say tension, but it does certainly create some work-life challenges. And it does mean running a day-to-day job. And at the same time, you're a chairman of two, you know, really powerful, significant organizations. And you do need to balance those. But you also need to remember, you know, first time I joined the Hasler board as the chairman, my first thing I said to everybody was, guys, we need to forget the name on your business card. And now that's not to diminish what got you there in the first place, but it's to remember the fact, and this goes for a SIFMA as well, that you are there for the good of the industry. You are not there for the good of your firm or you personally. Now, if your firm has an agenda and that is the best thing to push for the industry, absolutely fine, not a problem at all. But if that is something that is overly specific to the firm, you have to be able to set that aside. Now, I'm going to go all love actually here on you. Basically, I'm going to serenade you with compliments. Anyone who knows you knows that you are the definition of an alpha securities lending trader. 17 years at Morgan Stanley, you've run multiple trading desks, managed countless people. Can you help the audience with what exactly makes a good securities lending trader? The answer is going to be different for a lot of other people. Because from my perspective, having integrity is, to me, number one most important thing. And so what I would say to everybody that wants to think about that is you've got to be honest 
If you have a problem, speak up. Hope that your managers listen to you. Hope your managers understand that, but you have to have integrity. You cannot lie, you cannot cheat, you cannot hope to hide something. You cannot say, oh yeah, no, I did that. I just can't find it right now. Integrity is the most important thing. Now, if you don't believe that the people around you, whether they're colleagues, whether they're managers, you don't feel that same level of integrity, it is time for you to move to somewhere else. Your integrity is your personal brand. It is your personal brand. So I would say, wherever you work, whoever you work for, you have to trust the people above you and you have to believe in your own personal brand. Now, Stu, I've always wanted to ask you this. You moved from Morgan Stanley, the largest prime broker in the world, to Jefferies, a boutique investment bank. Now, in my mind, that's the equivalent of a Hollywood A-list actress dating Brad Pitt and then dating me. <laughs> Can you explain just how different that was? Again, it was quite a simple decision. I left Morgan Stanley because it's a phenomenal machine, incredible machine. The prime brokerage business is absolutely phenomenal. But when you wake up every day and you walk into the office and your debate is, who's done the most locates a day? I've done 20,000, I've done 10,000, I've done 5,000. You start to actually look at yourself and go, hang on a minute, can I actually generate any of these locates before they come in? I wanted the challenge. I wanted to move from you know Morgan Stanley with all this amazing technology, the amazing machine. I wanted to leave that and walk to a firm where you walked in and every day you have zero and you have to actually go out and use your own skills, your own ability, your own personal brand to bring a single order in, a single dollar. And you need to actually understand that you have to have really sharp elbows to go out and get the additional business, not just take for granted what the franchise gives you. So my biggest thing was I wanted to do something that was like a real challenge that I didn't think I had the skill set for. Simple as that. Now, you mentioned before, any regrets, and I'm not talking about why you didn't sell your war chest of Bitcoin when it hit 50 grand, but any <laughs> professional regrets. So it's not so much, do you have any regrets? It's more a question of, were you given an opportunity that you said, it's not the right time for me, I don't want to take it? The regrets come from not doing things rather than doing things that you learn something from. So in terms of regrets, somebody offers you something, take it, take the chance, roll the dice. Your regrets come from not doing something rather than doing something, in my opinion. Now, granted, this might be an odd question, but I've always wondered, when you hire somebody, do you look at their Batman to Robin qualities? Meaning you can't hire five Batmans, can you? Do you need Robins? Actually, I would say that is the most valuable question of this podcast. So when I look at a CV, I look at the personal interests. Maddie, listen, I'm sure you're going to say the same. If you look at a CV and the CV says, what do you do in your spare time? I, I read books. I play the violin. All very valuable, important stuff. But if you look at securities finance and you want to be in a team 
What I want to see in your CV is how do you perform as a team person? How do you perform in a team? What's your team sport capability? What are you going to tell me? What are you going to show me that makes me think this is a great team person? Now, this isn't an episode of Law & Order, so we don't exactly need a ball of red yarn and a bulletin board to figure this out. But any friendly career advice or words of wisdom for the younger audience, how to avoid unnecessary pitfalls or maybe how to flatten the learning curve? Yeah, I, th I think there's a couple of things that I would say. In a lot of firms in this industry, in this environment, this world, if you want to progress, you're going to, to an extent, have to sacrifice some of your own principles in order that you climb up the food chain and everyone goes, oh, what a great person. They said yes to me, even though, though they believe no. And what a great person. We're going to promote them. That's one route. My route is the exact opposite. If I don't believe that route A is the route we should take, I will absolutely speak out and be honest on it. If I believe that defending my team means that I have to take a hit as a manager and I get into trouble for it, I'll do that. If I don't believe that the global head of XYZ is right, I will argue and I will defend that. So you have two routes. Route one is to essentially say and be humble and to basically say, okay, yes, you're right. I've learned something here. Route two is to stay true to your core beliefs. Get yourself into a role where challenging people does not punish you. Don't be shy, please. The right thing is the right thing. Saying no is not a bad thing. If people above you don't like being told they're wrong, when they are wrong, you're in the wrong firm. That's all I would say. Well, Stu, that was by far the best interview ever. I thoroughly enjoyed it and I only have one word to describe it brilliant. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. And we look forward to seeing you soon, boss. Thank you. Our only ask to the listener is you are our lifeline. Market feedback of any kind helps. Comments, suggestions on future topics, inquiries, they're all welcomed. Please reach us at podcast at pazlaonline.com. Before we go, one final message. As Japan relaxes COVID restrictions, we are delighted to announce that the PASLA RMA Conference on Asia Securities Lending will return in person in Tokyo, Japan. Taking place at the Conrad in Tokyo from the 7th to March 9th, 2023, the conference will provide the highest level of thought leadership, key trends and topics shaping the securities lending landscape both today and tomorrow. Stay tuned for more updates on that right here on Asia Securities Finance Monthly. I'm Matt MacArthur in Hong Kong. We'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by gold sponsor Aqualand, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry, and silver sponsor Broadridge, a global fintech leader and proven partner to streamline and simplify your securities finance business.